Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the greatest living American writer, a Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic, and a three-time Jeopardy! champion. I never let anyone forget that. We have a great show for you this week, based off of articles that appeared on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Stephen Garrett, our chief film critic, will be back to talk about several movies, including The Lost City, which is out in theaters now. And Daniel Cohen, our food and gambling correspondent, will be back to talk about food, mostly food, not gambling this week. New season of Top Chef is out, and we're going to lay the odds for that. But first, I'm going to talk to William Schwartz, Book and Film Globe contributor about Star Trek Discovery and a odd recent guest star appearance that closed out Star Trek Discovery's fourth season. We'll be right back after this musical interlude. So Star Trek was in the news last week. Star Trek is in the news sometimes, but this week it was a sort of a political controversy surrounding Star Trek. The season finale of season four of Star Trek Discovery featured the politician Stacey Abrams in a role as the president of the United Earth or something along those lines. And it got uh, got a lot of criticism and uh, it was created some controversy. And she also had her defenders, William Schwartz wrote a piece about this for us, and he's here today with me to talk about it. Hello, William. Hello. So tell me a little bit about this controversy. So if people were upset, why were people upset that Stacey Abrams, of all people, was on Star Trek? Well, because it's gimmicky guest star casting is what it really comes down to. She's a famous political figure, well, relatively famous anyway, and there's a certain class of people of conservative commentariat and just internet people in general who just really don't like any kind of politics in any kind of fictional media whatsoever, and a cameo appearance by somebody who is running for the governor of Georgia this year pretty much seems tantamount to a political endorsement, so naturally, people were upset about that. Yeah, I mean, she's... I wouldn't say she's the most divisive figure in American politics. It's not like they uh, they put you know they they put Donald Trump in in bad makeup or or, or cast Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Rudy Giuliani, who is supposedly going to be on Masked Singer any week now, or, or Rudy Giuliani. So you know it's like you know Stacey Abrams is someone who is controversial among a certain kind of extremely online person, but it is you know or Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz complained about it. Right. Well, he's all he would also I mean, I don't there's no way on earth he would have been on a, a Star Trek show. But, the, but here's the thing. This is the, I don't really like Star Trek Discovery. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Star Trek in general. You know, I, I love Lower Decks, which is their animated show that they have on Paramount Plus. It's sort of a satire uh, cartoon of, of the whole Star Trek mythology. But the, the thing about Discovery is and you talk about this a little bit in your piece. It's kind of excessively woke, even for Star Trek, like Star Trek started as a it's always been a liberal show. I mean, Gene Roddenberry, you know, conceived of it as sort of a liberal space utopia. You know, the thing about the original series that really made it interesting, and you can see this in what I'm going to call the second generation of Star Trek, TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. You see it in the first Star Trek iteration. The fact that there are crew members who are people of color on the ship is presented is just completely unremarkable and entirely without commentary. And that is 
that is the commentary. In the future, you're going to have mixed race people, but and nobody's going to think this is even slightly remarkable. It's mentioned like exactly once, the very goofy episode where Abraham Lincoln shows up. And he's the per- kind of person who would find this kind of thing noteworthy. And that's really about it. Nobody else cares. Their idea of wokeness was basically to be post-race. We live in a society where these kinds of things don't matter anymore. And even if in practical terms, we know that's not what was going on behind the scenes of the show, it was, it was a very nice aspirational idea. I mean, it's why, in general, Star Trek, I think, is popular in a nonpartisan way with liberals and conservatives alike, which is why a future of Stacey Abrams is too much of an explicit political endorsement. So it feels like it goes too far for people who tend to see Star Trek in this very nonpartisan way. Right. And in that second generation of shows, you had Avery Brooks as Benjamin Sisko. He was the black commander of this space station. Kate Mulgrew uh, as Captain Janeway in Voyager. These things were not presented as radical. It's just like, oh, of course there's a black man in charge. Of co- And this was in the 90s. Of course there's a woman who's captaining a starship. And it wasn't presented as some sort of like something radical. Whereas, you know, Michael Burnham, who is the heroine hero, her, her elevation is some sort of like radical thing. And it it's just so funny that Star Trek's been doing this for a long time. It's entirely a discourse thing. I'm, I don't think anybody would honestly have even noticed the Stacey Abrams cameo if there weren't all these puff pieces put out ahead of time talking about what a great thing it was. And it was just, it was particularly weird to see because I hadn't even realized Star Trek Discovery was having a new season at all until I'd started seeing these stories. Nobody had even mentioned it up until that point. And then this is the thing that is important is, oh, Stacey Abrams is appearing in a, as a guest star in an episode. Right. Well, that's because it's hides on the Paramount Plus network and, and, and no one's watching it or talking about it. It's like that's, you know, that is a, I mean, I guess people are watching Paramount Plus. We got a whole Yellowstone expanded universe and that's the big thing. But somehow nobody cares about Star Trek anymore. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's weird, right? It's like there, there's multiple Star Trek shows going on. Picard, Lower Decks. There's a lot of Star Trek content. There's a new movie coming up and, and it's just kind of like this this content stream that's been surpassed by many, many things. <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, but, you know, you, you did, um, you talked amusingly in your piece about sort of the history of celebrity Star Trek cameos. You know, you talked about The Rock played a gladiator on Star Trek Voyager. There was a, a, a Iggy Pop. Brian Williams is my favorite in joke because that is just. Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Brian Williams claims he was on Star Trek, but actually wasn't. That's the that's a joke. Uh, so um, yeah, Paul Williams, the, the 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 composer. Why why is that one so good? Because he leads a planet that has no music, no concept of music. That's the entire premise of the episode: is that the Doctor, the hologram character, they hear him singing while on a rescue mission, and they just become really excited because they have had no concept of music. They've never heard of music before. It's a deep cut joke that you have to know lots of different things and it's really not even slightly important to the overall context of the episode so huh that's funny as we come up upon easter in a few weeks from now it is kind of worth noting easter eggs are fun because they're hard to find if you're gonna put articles about your easter eggs and how amazing they are then it's not it's not really fun anymore right and it's not actually an easter egg when you know it's obviously stacy abrams and she's the president the president of the United Earth, you know, and because there is a, a political faction out there that wants to see President Stacey Abrams. I've seen it discussed. So it's just kind of annoying that they, they would prophesize it like that. 
you know, the weird thing is even in the context of the show, she's not like a great leader or anything. She kind of screws lots of stuff up, but then we, we actually get to see her at the end and it's, Oh, she's this very grandiloquent and epic figure. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering like what came first, the chicken or the Easter egg, you know, did Star Trek discovery write the part for her? Well, she is a Trekkie. So, you know, there were, there was some kind of collusion going on. It's a very, very strange little side pop culture story. You really had to really, really want to be on Star Trek, but in this particular case, I mean, after what after with Blackish, like I just I kind of have trouble seeing that Stacey Abrams people are reaching out for these kinds of appearances. It seems more likely to me that it's going the other way around, just because of the way that shows like this are branding themselves these days. That it's important not just to entertain, but to, to provide some kind of important moral message, something deep and transcendent, and. You can't really make a deep transcendent message that directly relates to current politics, that it completely goes against just the fundamental logic of speculative fiction, which is that you need to make things strange enough that you really have that, that it encourages you to think about the situation in entirely new ways. You can't just solve a problem by putting a new person in charge. The president of the Federation is not in the historical canon of the show, a particularly important, well, okay, president of Earth, not president of the Federation, but all the same. These kinds of leaders were not emphasized that much in the show because they're not shows about political solutions or big statements. They're just one crew trying to solve one problem right in front of them at the moment. Very good. Yeah, that's a perfect, to me, that's a perfect summation of the show and why uh, Star Trek Discovery in particular has gone off the rails. William, thank you so much for talking to me about it, and thank you for a great piece on Book and Film Globe. Great talking to you. Stephen Garrett is back on the podcast to talk about movies on our segment that we call Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen. We still haven't thought of anything better than that. What could get better than that? That sounds perfect. Yeah, it sounds great to you. <laughs> it's like your name's in it. Anyway, Stephen uh, reviewed a movie, um, which is which is all he does. Not all he does, but it's all he does for us uh, on the site this week. Uh, and that movie is The Lost City. Starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, and uh, you know my um, my wife saw a preview for this when we went to the movies a few weeks ago, and she's like, "Oh, I can't wait to see that." And I'm like, "You can't wait to see it." I, I don't understand the idea of you can't wait to see a mo- this uh, sort of romancing the stone ripoff thirty five years later. But and, and you know another thing too, um, it, this movie, The Lost City, premiered at South by Southwest uh, a couple of weeks ago, and everyone was just lining up around the block to see it and they couldn't wait and they couldn't wait. I'm like, this is supposed to be a festival that celebrates underdog independent filmmakers. There's nothing underdog or independent about the loss. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely underdog because they don't really make high, big budget rom-coms anymore, you know? And Sandra Bullock is, uh, you know, she's not as young as she was when she was at her heyday making romantic comedies. And so this is a bit of a return to form for her. And that, and uh, it's a weird throwback, you know. I I share your wife's uh, enthusiasm, you know, I, or anticipation. I was looking forward to it. 
Right. It's the kind of movie that we used to go see, you know, uh, sort of wacky romantic uh, comedies with some adventure thrown in. And it's true that they don't make they don't make sort of non IP based movies very much anymore, at least like at least right. big budget ones. And so in this one, the premise is that Sandra Bullock is a romance novelist um, who gets caught up in some sort of ridiculous intrigue trying to find some mythical city in the jungle. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is, it is romance in the stone, but then again, like that, as you said, that's, that was 35, 40 years ago, you know? So, um, you know, why not rip off the idea of a romance novelist who actually gets entangled in actual adventure with, you know, a swashbuckling guy. Look, it's a cute idea. Is it kind of a rip off? Sure. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't mind it. Well, I'm just I'm just saying that you know I don't I have not seen Romancing the Stone in a very long time, but I I, I distinctly remember that it, it was largely distinguished as many Kathleen Turner movies back in the day were by you know Kathleen Turner was a smoke show yeah in her heyday she was always wet <laughs> in every movie <laughs> always I mean, there's never been a wetter wetter Hollywood actor than Kathleen Turner at her prime. <laughs> Always glistening. And Michael Douglas, you know, in that movie, he was actually an adventurer. Whereas in this movie, Channing Tatum is, you know, does what he does best, which is play sort of someone who's handsome but bumbling. He's like an underwear model who basically like, or a model. He's a model. He's like the model for Sandra Bullock's book covers. And they end up, and he ends up having to like engage uh, in adventures with her. And that, what jungle is it? Is it the Amazon? No, it, you know, all right. So this is where it starts. This is where it starts to fall apart a little bit. I mean, it's 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 on an island in the Atlantic. You mean like Iceland? Exactly. Like, why are there any sort of tropical islands in the Atlantic? But sure, I guess. Are they on the, the Faroe Islands? I mean, <laughs> it's the weirdest. It's it's very weird, and you're just like, all right, I'll just go with it. And Daniel Radcliffe is a funny villain until he's not, you know. And Channing Tatum is charming until he's gets a little boring. And the best part is with Brad Pitt at the beginning where, you know, he is the the action adventurer and that's played for last because he's such a perfect action adventurer, you know, like he almost never makes any mistakes. And then, you know, there's a, there's a little twist there and then his cameo ends and then it's just Channing and uh, Sandy pulling leeches off each other. Mm. That sounds swell, Steven. I can't wait to see the lost city. <laughs> No, it's really fun. It's really silly. Uh, and then it kind of overstays its welcome and loses some of its charm. And then by the end, you're kind of like, oh, it's still going. There's some funny bits, but I'd really like to leave the theater now. It sounds like a, a lot of movies, honestly. Uh, but whatever. It's a movie. It's a movie in theater. And it's an old throwback to what we used to love about movies. It's great. Very good. That's The Lost City. So meanwhile, uh, a couple weeks ago, you posted a review of a, a streaming movie called Deep Water. Yeah. Starring Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas, it's a it's a first movie that Adrian Lin has directed. He's I think he's ninety five years old. He hasn't directed he hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't directed an erotic thriller since since the late sixties or whatever. Um, he's uh, he's eighty one, and it's been twenty years since his last one, which was unfaithful. I'm a little off. I'm a little off. Here's the thing. This has been, you know, I follow the discourse pretty carefully. This has been one of the most deliciously hate-watched movies in, in recent memory, Deep Water. An erotic thriller that is that is extremely <laughs> ridiculous and, you know, yeah. not 
all that erotic just because it's so ridiculous. Right, right, right. Look, I mean, I, I had high hopes for this too because of all the reasons I said about Lost City where it's the kind of movie people don't make anymore. It's not an IP movie. It's a movie about adults who are driven by their passions, their physical urges and passions for each other and their jealousies. And, you know, that's a that's a refreshing story to see. We don't see that anymore. And uh, to see movies that take sex seriously as something that drives our behavior towards each other and in marriages that are happy and unhappy, you know? So it, it really doesn't have a sense of its own absurdity, I think. And I think the script is really to blame. One of the screenwriters was Sam Levinson, who you know, from Euphoria and oh, oh, but the other one. Oh, this guy. Yeah, you, you tell me, you tell me. The other one was Zach Helm, who um, wrote uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which was a Will Ferrell movie in the Not early two thousands, and then he wrote a manifesto. It's really long, pretentious manifesto that got a lot of attention, saying that he would never uh, compromise his vision for anything, for anyone, for any reason, and that screenwriters should never compromise. And then he wrote and directed the movie Mr. McGlorium's Wonder Emporium, <laughs> starring Dustin Hoffman, an all-time all legendary Hollywood bomb, Ishtar-level bomb, but but not by written by Elaine May. Awful, awful. Um, a huge bomb. And then he vanished, completely vanished, for almost 15 years until he wrote Deep Water. His triumphant return. Amazing. The hackiest, most uh, formulaic most ridiculous kind of movie. And it feels like, you know, the whole idea that, you know, Ana de Armas is like a dark sex kitten, basically, who can't stop cheating on her husband. She bites dicks. Yeah. She, she, she gives angry hand jobs. <laughs> that strikes me as the creation of a frustrated middle-aged male screenwriter. Well, <laughs> or two. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like I, uh, I, I don't, I don't join you in your speculation, but certainly something was going on that maybe distracted him from good storytelling. Or maybe he was just never really good at good storytelling to begin with for the reasons you mentioned. I'm having a little uh, I'm having a little writer Freud. Ah, <laughs> what was that manifesto that he wrote? What was that? It was just it was some kind of man. It was some sort of screenwriter's manifesto. It's not available in full. Uh, when I was talking about this with you online, I, I emailed you a couple of like excerpts from it. They're still lingering on old blogs from like 10 or 15 years Yikes. ago. Yikes. Cringy. Horrifying. And, you know, and, and sometimes you, you see somebody write something like that and you're like, uh, what, whatever happened to them? And then you look and they're like, oh, they've been working on this TV show or that TV show or they had a movie or they made a couple, you know, they were part of the team on some superhero movie. You know, they're at least still working. But this guy's not been working. It's petty, but I'm, I'm a writer, so I'm allowed to be petty, and I, I just I just find it quite uh, quite hilarious. Can I add quickly? You know, this was based on because I didn't mention in the review, but it was based on this book by Patricia Highsmith, who has had much better success with her books being adapted into movies like The Talented Mr. Ripley and things like that. And there was an earlier and The Price of Salt, which which Todd Haynes made into Carol, right? And there have been several excellent Ripley movies made in English and French. But wait, which which book was this based on? A book called Deep Water, apparently. And, you know, there was a French version of this that came out in the early, like 40 years ago, called, you know, Le Profonde or something. Um, but the point being, she wrote it in the 50s. And I think in the 50s, it made more sense that you could have a frustrated husband who didn't want to get a divorce for all the social stigma reasons of that. And this woman who was unhappy in her marriage, you know, 
and also the idea that this guy was despondent because his technology create you know was was given to drones is a bit of a stretch like seriously it's rife with problems but it also has it's rife with promise too and it's it's just too bad that it stumbles as poorly as it does, you know. I, I did not know it was based on a Highsmith novel. She's one of my favorite novelists, and that's, that's very that makes it even more frustrating. Why would you take <laughs> exactly. Why would you take a Patricia Highsmith novel? And be like, I'm going to give it to Zach Helm to adapt. No, that guy knows how to adapt it. Her books. Yeah, she you know she she also I think wrote the original novel on, that Mister Maglorium's Wonder Emporium was based. <laughs> Is that right? There you go. Yeah, it was original. It was it was an adaptation of a of a later Tom Ripley novel. All right, so let's let's uh, let's talk about a third movie. We're going we're, we're having a, a a threesome this week, so to speak. When it comes to movies, we're gonna, we're going to talk about three movies. Let's put it that way. I saw at South by Southwest. I saw the new Nicolas Cage movie with the horrifyingly uh, pretentious title, "The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent." But the movie itself isn't really that pretentious. You you've seen this as well. I had, yeah, no, it's, you know, that's, that's another one that's really fun. Actually, I, I loved all the meta stuff, you know, it was very, uh, you know, it was very Charlie Kaufman there for a while that he's playing himself, or maybe it's very, whatever your latest flavor of actors playing themselves, call my agent. I don't know. Yeah. I I liked watching him kind of struggle and writhe uh, under the, the problems of being Nick Cage and people not wanting to work with him or him being a little extra or whatever, and his agent having problems booking stuff for him. And then him being like haunted by his younger self from uh, Wild at Heart. I thought that was hilarious. I love seeing de-aged actors haunt themselves like that. <laughs> well, the premise of the movie is that Nicolas Cage is down on his luck for Nicolas Cage. He's got he's estranged from his family and in debt. And he takes this job. It's not even really a job. He just agrees to get paid a million dollars by a, a rich guy in Spain to go to a, a birthday party in Mallorca. And the rich guy is played by... Pedro Pascal, who uh, is from a drug fa- a drug crime family, and he's involved in some shady business, you know. But this bromance develops between the two of them, which is actually I thought I thought you know Pedro Pascal first of all was very funny and convincing, very very convincing. It made up for his terrible performance in Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. That was all very cute, and then like there was there were a lot of very clever references to old Nicolas Cage movies. And in fact, Pedro Pascal's character has a, a vault full of Nicolas Cage memorabilia. You know, and then then the movie um, evolves or devolves uh, the last half hour into the kind of sleazy, I mean, silly action thriller that, yeah, that, that Nicolas Cage used to make, like like Con Air and whatnot. And the last half hour is, is totally that. And then there's a little twist at the end, which I thought was kind of clever. I, I felt like it's not being John Malkovich, like you, you mentioned, like that's an art film, <laughs> you know? Right, right. This, this is more of like a, like a, like bro fan fiction. It's absolutely, bro- yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Like that's, and I think that was my disappointment. Not that it, I needed it to be an art house film, but I, I, I wasn't expecting it to be so predictable. I mean, it, it just became the thing that it was trying to parody or celebrate or comment on. It just ended up being that. You know, and I think that was on purpose, but there was just like a level of cleverness that was missing. Yeah, that little extra extra level, which I feel was there right in the first half. It felt like it was potentially that kind of clever film. I just feel like, you know, again, that's I think it's just kind of a screenwriting issue. You know, these were obviously like Hollywood bros who made the movie. The script was just clever and cool enough to, to draw Nick Cage into the project. This also debuted at South by Southwest and like every, everything everywhere all at once. Like I don't I'm unsure as to what kind of an audience 
this is movie's going to find. I think that that the previous, the other movie I mentioned has more of a chance to break out a little bit than right, this one. Right, right. I feel like this is, this is, I, I can't imagine this is going to be a big hit. I guess. Yeah, I guess not. But I think the people who are going to love it are going to love it for the reasons you're talking about. I mean, it is, a, it's a lot of fun. It's fun. I do think the lost city is going to be a, a bit of a hit though. Uh, I, yeah, I think it will. I think, it, I think it'll, it'll come out pretty strong and there's a curiosity factor and a nostalgia factor. I mean, I really don't know how much longer Sandra Bullock can play roles like this. You know, this, you know, she produced this and I think she's, she can still kind of pull off being in a romantic comedy, but at a certain point she's, I mean, she's going to be 60 in a few years. Right. So like, I guess you could still have late in life romantic comedies. Yeah. yeah. Six women, women who are in their fifties and sixties can find love. She's a romance novelist. We can all find love everywhere. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Tell Danielle Steele you can't find love later in life. Tell her that. <laughs> it may not be with Channing Tatum. Maybe with somebody else. Maybe it's with Harrison Ford. I don't know. My, maybe with Channing Tatum's dad. Yeah, with Channing Tatum's dad. All right. I mean, who I'm sure is still extremely handsome if he made a Channing Tatum, you know? Exactly, yeah, exactly right. This is the kind of in-depth and uh, insightful uh, movie coverage you can't get anywhere else but on the Book and Film Globe podcast. Stephen Garrett, thanks for talking about movies with me. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. My pleasure. If I had my druthers, and I guess I do, I have some druthers, but if I had more druthers, I would probably spend most of my time uh, on this show and elsewhere talking about cooking TV shows and chefs getting eliminated, which we have discussed recently on this show, but it never ends. The chefs never stop getting eliminated. And now Top Chef, the gold standard of cooking competition shows, is back with a new season. And Daniel Cohen has a piece in Book and Film Globe this week, laying the odds for who's going to win. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm fine. So uh, back to talk to you about, about cooking shows again. And uh, we've both been watching Top Chef Houston. And I, I've been in, I've been enjoying this season. It seems like a, a classic Top Chef. And they're giving a nice spotlight to Texas, as you point out in your article. The other times that Top Chef has visited Texas have been, been a bit disastrous. Well, they had a season. Season nine was was really uh, really disastrous. Yeah, I think I think maybe the worst season of Top Chef ever. I mean, it's it's both both in terms of how it played out and like the like verbal abuse that was typified typified almost every episode. <laughs> like going back, that's one of the seasons I just can't go back and watch. And I love watching all the seasons of Top Chef, but that's just you mean that that chef from Dallas who had all those problems because I know Paul Key won and then later we got in a lot of trouble for like you know domestic assault, but he wasn't the one verbally abusing people. No, that was uh, Sarah, the uh, chef from Chicago, who was, I'm trying to remember what her, her, her uh, cohort's name was. Heather and Sarah teaming up on poor old Beverly. That's what it was. They were, all, they were all from Chicago and they hated each other. Cat fight. So, but the, the, the real, the, but the really th- bad part about the show was that they made very poor use of the Texas setting. You know, it was bouncing around from Dallas to San Antonio to Austin yeah. and it never really got its footing. Whereas Top Chef Houston 
Um, it feels very grounded in place, like the good seasons of Top Chef. Like, you know, even the pandemic Portland season, I thought was very Portland. And, you know, obviously the L.A. seasons aren't really very L.A. because every show takes place in L.A. But when they do go to a location and really hone in on it, they do a great job. And, you know, the night market, the Asian night market episode was very appealing. Yeah. My thought about that was that when they when they try to tell a bigger story about a, about a place, they usually do a really good job of it. The L.A. season, the most recent one, like, the episode that really stuck out to me was when they did the the tour of like Jonathan Gold's favorite restaurants. And it was a really nice tribute to him and sort of to the influence he's had on restaurant culture. And it, it definitely inspired the chefs, as I recall, to make some bad versions of uh, Jonathan Gold's favorite dishes. But overall, it was, it was it was a nice season. And like this, this seems like it's going to be a nice season, too. Maybe too nice. Like there don't seem to be any heels already. Usually you need a, you need a good villain, but, but it, is, it is early. So maybe one will establish themselves. I don't think there are any particular bad guys. Uh, that said, there are there have been some um, you know some good challenges and early favorites are establishing themselves. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was it, that was made very clear uh, last night in episode four, which I, my piece went up before it went. But, but as I said to my wife when we were watching it, I was like, of those people at the top, Daniel, those were all Daniel's picks. Yeah. Buddha and Jackson were your top two, and they teamed up to recreate to do sort of a wily Dufresne like molecular gastronomy challenge sorts where they had to make these right. two identical dishes looked identical but had completely different flavor profiles you know and they they were the team and they destroyed the other team it, it was clear that like jack so jackson wins the uh biscuit challenge and, and like when he finds out what the what the the elimination challenge is i mean it's it's so obvious that you pick buddha there because buddha is this molecular molecular gastronomist but like the, the thing that they actually made was like the, the sort of uh, everything bagel slash strawberries and cream thing that wasn't particularly molecular gastronomic at all. It was just like a lot of really well-plated food. <laughs> that deconstructed everything bagel looked freaking delicious. It did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also your other top pick, uh, Damar, who, um, who, uh, who uh, I think he was in the team that finished second. He also looked very strong. And so, you know, obviously the, those are the, the chefs who are establishing themselves. And, you know, you were pretty good at this. Like the, the ones who were at the top of your rankings were at the top last night. The ones who were at or near the bottom were at or near the bottom. I mean, you, you were like like the Jimmy the Greek of cooking shows. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If you've been watching Top Chef for 19 seasons like I have over and over, you start to, you start to notice ways in which the show sort of uh, – pre-calls, illuminations, and things like that. So, like, I, I had my, my ears up for Sarah last night because they gave her the big personality package in episode three. They had her on, on the phone with their fiancé questioning her own confidence, and usually that's just a good sign that someone's about to leave. Um, I was surprised that her partner Robert left because I think he, he hasn't been doing much, but that usually doesn't portend an early illumination. It usually means he's going to be around for a while. So he may have gotten sort of dragged into it just by, by unlucky dint of the fact that it was a double illumination last night. Someone's got to go. And, you know, and we're already at the point of the season where, like, the pure bottom. Well, first of all, the first woman to get eliminated, Leah, was clearly not the worst of the bunch. She just had a no. she said a bladder infection. Right. She, she's, 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 she's dying of dehydration but, on the couch. But she was clearly someone who would have – she easily could have made Restaurant Wars. And I haven't watched the latest Last Chance Kitchen yet. But she even strikes me as someone who could somehow outlast um, the competition to get a mid a mid season return, and they've been doing that lately, bouncing people back into the competition mid season instead of at the end of the season with Last Chance Kitchen. I think if like the producers maybe decide that well 
this is someone who just got bounced too early. Yeah, very, it could very well be the case. I actually haven't watched uh, the most recent last night, last Chance Kitchen either. Um, but she won, you know, the first two pretty easily. Pretty easily. Well, she beat um, the goofiest contestant of the year, uh, Sam, um, who, uh, you know, was who just like made horrible mistake after horrible mistake. The the uh, He boils these potatoes and then forgets to bag them up. And so he has to grill potatoes on the spot and then pretends like that was his plan. Right. And that's and that's so that's sort of like one of the great running jokes of Top Chef is is you know, God bless you if you've got to cook South Asian food for Padma. Padma sees right through his story immediately, of course, and and you know, does not give him the time of day, which is just fantastic television. Um he was seemingly the loveliest guy, like like the nicest person, but just uh, horrible. Yeah, she didn't find him cute. He was adorable looking. And he kind of had an adorable personality, but some of the stuff he said afterwards, like, I'm just here to learn, you know, yeah. I'm just learning. I'm like, that's the sign of someone who actually isn't learning and is just going to do whatever he wants to do. But uh, whatever. It was, I mean, he was good television and it was a sort of entertaining early season plot line. We got, we got to talk, talk about Stephanie, though. Oh, yes. From North Dakota. What a character. Uh Comes in and, and you know, is so unfamiliar with any sort of, like, conceptual Asian cooking that she decides, okay, I'm going to make steak and potatoes in reference to my upper Midwestern heritage. And then I'm going to throw some bok choy on there and that'll be good. That wasn't even the dish she got eliminated on. No. And that, and that, was, that, that was only, but that was only because Leah had a bladder infection. Right. <laughs> then she goes and makes feijoada, which apparently is uh, big in Minneapolis and leaves the meat out. You work your whole career to be on Top Chef and then you make a bad dish of rice and beans. It's kind of it's kind of incredible. She was like, I'm the only Top Chef ever from North Dakota. <laughs> and presumably will be for a while. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, right? It's like I, I, I like seasons like this where there are people that we can kind of laugh at. Like there's. There have been great contestants in the past that like get eliminated during the, the first quick fire and never even see the house. Right. They don't even get, they don't even get a, a tender goodbye from the other chefs because no one's met them yet. Famous, I think, I think it was the, the San Francisco one or whatever year it was, where there was some dude who was like nineteen and gets eliminated during a butchery challenge, like before anyone else has even cooked or anything. They just pulled him off the line and just sent him home. It was awesome. Well, that's why we like chefs getting eliminated, because we get to wallow in other people's misery. I, I wanted to switch gears real quick, because there's another cooking competition show. We're talking about Tournament of Champions on the Food Network, uh, hosted by Guy Fieri. It's like a bracket. It's a chef bracket. And most of these chefs are well-known. They're mostly TV chefs. I mean, there's a few, there's a few well-known restaurant chefs. And they compete in these challenges and, you know, it's kind of like a chopped mystery basket with a randomizer. And then there are these famous – the whole thing, it's, it's like the ultimate culmination of the of the Food Network circle jerk, right? And, and it's just like they compete until they're down to the final chef. And it just – nobody gets to taste the food except for Eric Repair and Jonathan Waxman. You know, even Guy Fieri doesn't eat the food. So it's kind of like what are we really watching here? Yeah, and that's that's exactly kind of exactly how I feel about it. Like the the actual food itself is kind of incidental to the point of the competition, which is like let's let's sort of spin the slot machine and give them uh, you know a strange protein, a useless uh, kitchen implement, and like a, a cooking technique you'd never use in twenty minutes. And then it's like okay, we have a chopped judge and a former Top Chef runner up engaging in a cage match. Right. Like a culinary cage match, and they're like flexing and coming out of a tunnel with smoke, and I'm like, "What?" We've got right. They've got like like private trailers where they're sequestered, and no one can speak to them except for Guy Perry's son. Yeah. Hey, what's up? How's it going? 
Hey, Hunter. Good to see you. Um, the thing I like about it most is everybody has a shitty nickname. Hundo versus the G-Man. <laughs> okay. It's time for Frenchy Repair. Like, you know, this. Oh, well, the one I love is Super Chef Darnell Ferguson. Yes. He calls himself Super Chef, has a Super Chef jacket. And Regina's like, who the, who the my wife is like, who the hell is Super Chef? I've never seen him before. So I, 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 have, I know exactly who Super Chef is because I do watch guys' grocery games. And if you, if you aren't in that world, like, I mean, that show's been on forever now. And, like, it's, it's, it's kind of settled into itself. But the, the very early seasons of that show. You could see that, like, the likes of Richard Blaze and, and Tony LaFosso and whoever else were the guest judges just hated being there. Hated Guy's shtick, hated the, the awful food they had to eat, hated the, you know, contrived nature of the challenges. Like, it, it was very clearly something they were picking up to prolong their TV careers. And now, 30 seasons in, it's like they actually seem to enjoy it. Like, the standards have fallen that far. Well, also, like, it's just like there's so many of these shows now and so many of these competitions. I don't know how many of these chefs actually do anything else at this point, but cook on TV. Pretty much. I mean, there's definitely, they, they lend their names to restaurants in like third tier casinos and that kind of thing. But who do you think is winning the tournament of champions? I need to look at the brackets. The other thing is it's really confusing because the, the, the full bracket is never really shown at any point. Like they show you the, the subregions and things like that. I'm like, why is this guy four seed and this guy two seed? And it just doesn't make any sense, you know? Obviously, like former champions get the number one seed, Brooke Williamson, Money Chohan. You can see why they're, they're seated number one. Brooke, Brooke, Brooke Williamson is really good at this format. I, I will say that like she is, she's almost she's almost always in the finals of these things. I mean, the Voltaggio brothers are involved and in, in still alive, I think. And they sort of probably are as close to actually being like restaurateurs in 2022 as anybody in this field. Like. Elizabeth, you have Elizabeth Faulkner. She, she, I think, still works in restaurants. There's a few, right. there's a few people in there who you're like, okay, these people are still working in restaurants. You know, they're not like chopped judges or whatever. All right, Daniel, this high end conversation has to end here. Thank you so much for chatting about food with me yet again. Always a pleasure. Have a good day. All right, thanks, Daniel. Please pack your knives and go. But come back soon to talk more about food TV with me. Also, thanks to William Schwartz for talking to me about Stacey Abrams and Star Trek. And thanks to Stephen Garrett, as always, for talking to me about several movies that you will be able to see either in theaters or on your TV or never. It's up to you. Movies are your choice, really. You don't have to see movies. I have to see movies, but you don't. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish fresh, hot content nearly every day. We will be back next week with another exciting podcast episode. Thanks for reading. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.
Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.